Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
So much of what I learned from Cooking the World was about community. There's this great quote, the first day we meet, the next day we are brothers. And this idea that when we sit down to the food and we, and we put away our silverware and we're digging in with our hands and we're having this communal meal, something changes. That was Sasha Martin. She cooked one meal from a new country every week, a process that took almost four years. Sasha's new memoir, Life from Scratch, describes such an unusual childhood that her favorite TV show was The Addams Family because she felt like she would fit right in. Right now, it's time to chat with Raina Chaveri at Milk Street about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? I'm very well, Chris. Hi. This week, for the holiday menu, we're going to take a break, a break from high cost. So we're going to start with an eye round and figure out how to make it taste like a prime rib. How do we do that? Well, Chris, we started with an ingredient that we've grown very fond of here at Milk Street. We're starting with prunes. And our recipe uses, as you said, eye round, which is often deemed to be a very lean and not very tender cut of meat because it's taken from the hind leg of a steer, so there's not much marbling, and marbling is what makes meat tender and moist. Um, But we're marinating this meat in prunes as well as soy sauce, ketchup, and anchovies, so it's not only moist, but it's got loads of umami flavor. We did get the idea for prunes from commercial applications that use prune extract to, to do this. It turns out that it did help, but it was really the saltiness of the soy sauce and the umami flavors of the anchovies, which also helped. And 48 hours of marinating. We also poked holes in the roast to get that marinade right in the middle. So all those things were necessary to really make this thing work. Well, you save a few bucks, you've got to do a little bit of extra work. Yes, absolutely. You (laughs) said that with a big smile. Good. (laughs) So Chris, when we're done with that 48-hour marinade, we do a low and slow roast, uh, about two hours in a 275-degree oven until the meat registers 125 degrees. And then to finish this, we really like to serve this with a bright and punchy horseradish sauce made with fresh horseradish, vinegar, sour cream, and some rosemary. And you can actually find fresh horseradish root in the produce aisle. Very often it's near the fresh ginger. So this week we did a magic trick. We took an eye round and turned it into prime rib with prunes, anchovies, ketchup, and soy sauce as the marinade, and then slow roasted it and came up with a really tender, delicious cut of meat with a great horseradish sauce. Thank you, Reina. Thank you, Chris. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and our own site, Milk Street Radio. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Of course, she's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, ready to take calls? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? My name is Loretta, and I I am glad to talk to you because I have a question. (laughs) Hopefully, we'll be able to answer it. (laughs) Give it a shot. Um, I make crepes a lot. I make them ahead of time. Is there any way that you could actually make the batter ahead of time and freeze it? Well, I'm sitting here with Sarah Moulton, and so the idea that I would answer a question about crepe batter is insane. Well, first of all, I want to comment that this is sort of exciting, Loretta. I've been on book tour all year with my new book, and one of the things we make is crepes. And I always insist, and I'm sure you know this, that when you make the batter, you need to let it rest because you need to let the gluten relax so that you have tender crepes. So I'm sure you do that. And I believe the French do it 24 hours ahead of time and put it in the fridge. They do? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, Any rate, you know, because we've been doing this on the road, I did a little homework to find out if we could indeed make the batter ahead of time and freeze it, and you can. 
I found that sort of baffling because milk doesn't freeze well. So what's in crepe batter? I don't know if this is what's in yours, but it's milk, flour, butter, eggs, right? Is that sound right? about it. Yeah. Do you put (laughs) sugar? Half and half. Half and half. But But, but either way, usually that kind of dairy doesn't freeze well, but it must be because of the flour in there that it's sort of stabilized. So yes, you can freeze it. I haven't tried it. So this is not empirical evidence, Loretta. This is what I read. That'd be great. But on the other hand, wouldn't you rather have the actual crepes in the freezer than the batter? Well, I've done that, too, but my problem is space. Ah. And a container of batter that I could really whip up fast and fry takes up a lot less room than a whole plate full of crepes. Well, it sounds like you make a lot of crepes at one fell swoop. But what do you do with them? Do you fill them? Oh, well, uh, yes. They're appetizers. I've made them with chicken. I have, you know, one of those food saver type bags and just put them in boiling water and I don't have to cook all the time. You can't see Sarah, but Sarah's sitting here with this huge Cheshire Cat smile. I am. thrilled. I am. Because I believe anything you put in a tortilla, you can put in a crepe. Yeah. But I do want to say one thing, that when I went to cooking school, we were taught that you couldn't stack crepes because they'd stick together, that you had to put a little piece of wax paper between each one. Mm -hmm. That is a pain to do that. I'm a lazy cook, so I just started stacking them, and I realized that what makes them stick when you refrigerate or freeze them is the butter solidifies. All you have to do is warm them, so you can stack them. Yeah, I don't put paper between them. You don't worry about it. And you're just stacked and ready to roll. And you have a good pan, I assume. Is it an official crepe pan? Yes, it is. Loretta, you're (laughs) spreading the crepe message. If you have crepes in the freezer or in the fridge, you've got dinner on the table or a good dessert. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. (laughs) This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pam Tremblay. Hi, Pam. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. And yourself? I'm good. So how can we help you? Well, I was reading a recipe for a coleslaw, and it, one of the ingredients was fish sauce. If I have a recipe that calls for fish sauce, and I'm allergic to fish and seafood, what can I use to get the same flavor? Well, I just learned this about a month ago. I was speaking to uh, someone who's a Vietnamese chef, cook, and she said uh-huh. that fish sauce, in fact, is from fish. It's from anchovies that sit in a barrel fermenting for a year, and there, wow. there's such a thing as a first pressing. Do you know this? Yeah. It's the, of course you do, your ceremony. So you open the spigot at the bottom and get that first stuff out. And it just fermented anchovies. I didn't uh-huh. realize yeah. that. Yeah. And it's in there for depth of flavor and for salt. It's for that umami. It's right. one of those things. You know, okay. the, I mean, salt is a good thing. Um, okay. And you said it was a coleslaw, huh? Yeah, yeah. it was on the Milk Street. That mailing. was our recipe. Oh, geez. That How was the Thai coleslaw that we had with a little fish. Yes. I would it looks say, amazing. It's very good. Well, soy sauce, right? I mean, yeah, I was going to say soy sauce would yeah. be safe. Not Worcestershire. Worcestershire also has fish in it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I can't use that. It's a secret That's recipe. So, yeah, I think soy would be good. Or, well, you know what a lot of people use is MSG. Oh, here's another place. Which is umami. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little miso. Yeah, miso would be good. Yeah, miso yeah. is fermented soybean paste and also oh, I has, never thought of that. has umami. I love miso. I'm trying to use it more. I keep it in my fridge. It's just instant depth of flavor. You don't have to add a ton. And the lighter colored stuff is less salty. So that's where I would go. Can I just point out, Sarah, you cooked with Jacques Pepin. I did. You went to the CIA. I did. You were close to Julia Child for many years. And now you're on to miso. Does that say something about the culinary world? I think we've turned a corner. We have more toys to play with. It's so (laughs) great. All right. You wouldn't know how to spell miso 30 years ago, right? No, no. And I would think it was so, you know, different, other. But anyway. So soy sauce would work. Um, Yeah. 
All right, great. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I'm going to try that recipe in the next couple of days. It's a great Alrighty. recipe. Thanks. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, please call us at one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Thank you for joining us on Milk Street today. And who do I have on the phone? Carolyn Wint. Hi, Carolyn. Out of Elkins, Arkansas. Originally from Chicago. Carolyn, what is your question? I keep trying to make creamed soups. I have tempered. I have done stuff. But then in the end, like if I put the soup back in the refrigerator, it all curdles on me. What kind of dairy are you using? I always use 2%. I can't. Mm. I have a lactose intolerance, and I'm big on milk. I love milk, but I always use 2%. Are your soups thickened before you add the dairy? Yes. They are. Thickened with what, a roux? I mean, butter and flour? Yeah, I always make a roux. That's what you taught us. Mr. Kimball. <laughs> the roux. Oh, man. It's your fault. Okay, well, that should work, but let me ask you a question. So the 2% milk, is it that lactate brand that's probably... Been... No, I can't do that stuff. So it's regular old 2% even though you're lactose intolerant? Yeah, because I don't drink that much of it, but I love my cream soups, and I've strayed away from them because it happens every time. Now, I can have success when I first make them, But I have to make small amounts because to sit there and put them in my refrigerator or to even freeze them, they don't come back. Are you saying that when you first make them, it's fine, but it's only after you refrigerate them, they separate or curdle? No, not always. Because I'm wondering if I didn't temper them properly. And sometimes, you know, I'll thicken up some of those soups with cornstarch if I didn't thicken them up enough or make a good enough roux or I've added too much water to it, and I'm wondering if that's part of it, too. Because with the cream, I always have to have a little water first in there. I was doing it in the beginning, and then I learned from watching your other shows that, nope, that's what's happening. I'm putting the creamy stuff in too soon. So I started doing the tempering thing. You put the cream in before the cornstarch? No. Okay. Oh, no, no. I'm doing it at the end, but once they cool off, then they, like, separate on me. Why not use much less dairy but use heavy cream? Because that won't curdle. Yeah, I mean, instead of using, let's say, half a cup at 2%, use a small amount of heavy cream. But, quarter cup. Yeah, quarter cup, but that's not going to be a problem. So I, I would go to heavy cream, but just use less. You'll end up with the same amount of dairy. And it will give you the flavor yeah. you're looking for because it's just that much more intense. It'll be richer. Yeah. Yeah, 2% milk for a cream soup isn't going to really give you what you want, that velvety uh, taste and texture anyway. I try heavy cream, just use less. Okay, that sounds good. I'll try that. I've never tried the cream. All right, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. Nice talking to you. Great talking to you. I'll be watching you. I'm getting the milk street. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I chat with Sasha Martin, who cooked her way around the world in her own kitchen. That's 195 countries in 195 weeks. And we also visit with our wine expert who answers the question, what to serve for the holidays. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, I chat with Sasha Martin. Her claim to fame is cooking one meal from 195 different countries over four years alphabetically, starting, of course, with Afghanistan. Her memoir, Life from Scratch, is filled with painful separations in foster homes, but also with her mother's scrappy cooking. From cinnamon raisin pizza to leftover rice cakes, and that is how she managed to hold the family together. I started by asking Sasha about her mother's trip to Samoa to put flowers on the grave of one of America's most celebrated writers, Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, Your book, Life from Scratch, uh, is an autobiography. Let's start with a specific moment and then go from there. It's the late 70s, I think. Uh, Your brother Michael is already born. Your mother is pregnant with you, and she decides to go to Samoa for three reasons. Uh, One, to put flowers on Robert Louis Stevenson's grave. Two, to investigate the setting for Margaret Mead's research on teenagers in Samoa. And three, a break from the winter on the Cape. Uh, I just thought that was sort of an interesting moment. And maybe that describes something uh, important about your mother. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my mom was always doing something a little unexpected, but when you dove into the heart of it, there was a a very good reason for what she was doing. And that adventure was a a really good example of of that. And um, her time in Samoa turned out to be, for me, one of the one of the things it was like the mythos of my childhood, um, kind of driving driving this curiosity into what what did the world have to offer. And then you said about her quote, uh, "What she was doing was teaching me the difference between poverty of resources and poverty of spirit." Uh, I just thought that was a wonderful way of putting it. Do you want to talk about that for just a second? Yeah, so um, when I was a little girl, my mom was a single mother on welfare in in Boston. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things that could have really brought down our spirits as children. You know, my brother and I shared um, the living room. Our clothes were stored in the dresser in the kitchen. It was just, it was tight quarters all around, but that didn't stop my mother. Um, She had this um, big spirit, and, and the kitchen was the place where... She brought us together, um, and literally it was the only place we could spend time since we did sleep in the living room. So she was doing her sewing there, and those were you know odd jobs to make ends meet, and that's where we cooked together as a family. And the kinds of recipes she cooked with us, so much of it was about these extravagant things to, to take us beyond our circumstances, to help us see that the world was so much more than maybe uh, strapped finances. Just give us the the really quick, um, although it's quite a story, um, you you finally are separated from your mother and go live with another family in Atlanta. You end up in Paris. Uh, Just just tell us just briefly uh, the story of those first 10 or 15 years. Yeah. um, Well, again, my mother, with her spirit, she she looked at the world through her own lens. And sometimes that was uh, wonderful and triumphant, and sometimes it really challenged social norms. And so 
I mean, the very first time I was ever in foster care was because she was making these hamburgers and she turned her back for a second and she was going to grab a pot holder to grab the burgers from off the broiler. And um, when she did, I toddled over and put my hands on the open broiler and got third degree burns. And so that in of itself was a, a totally harmless accident. But I think how she dealt with that um, really challenged people. You know, number one, she put aloe vera on my fingers, which back then was not known to be something you did for burns. And so they thought there was this weird hippie treatment and, and what was this woman doing? And then my mother, her emotions would rise. Another example, my brother, when she and he had an argument one time, he stormed out of the house in his pajamas and it was freezing out. And she said, oh, he'll be fine. He's just cooling off. He'll come back in when he's cold enough. And he was just there. She could see him through the window, but a cop drove by and wondered why this little boy was out there in his stocking feet in the cold, cold Boston winter. And so it was one thing after another like that that eventually led us into a string of foster homes. I, I, I kind of see my childhood as two different lives. With my mother, it was, again, that triumphant spirit bringing food together despite trying circumstances. With my guardians, it was um, it was not about being in the kitchen together. And I was shooed out of the kitchen and told to focus on my education. And so it was a totally different experience. But while I was with that family, we were in Europe. So I sought refuge outside of the home. I went to the bakeries in Paris and, and got a food education that way, um, trying to find that connection to the kitchen I had forged early with my mother. So the recipes in this book, and, and some of them are clearly recipes to make do. Uh, the, the, the most unusual is mom's cinnamon raisin pizza. You want to talk yeah, about that? Um, so yeah, uh, this was something that I had as a child and had forgotten about in the many years I was overseas. And when we got back in touch, mom rented this little apartment in the North End to try to connect me closer to our heritage. And one day I came back to the apartment and it, had, it was so fragrant with, um, you know, I could smell tomato sauce and there was something else, maybe cinnamon. And that's in fact what it was. And she had just taken this toast and broiled it and added tomato sauce and cheese and cinnamon and even hot paprika or cayenne, either one, a whole bunch of olive oil. It was this, you know, very strange recipe, but to her, she had developed a taste for that just, I think, like you said, through necessity. Um, this was the bread she had on hand. Us kids wanted pizza, and so that's what she made. Okay, so now you decide you want to start cooking every week a recipe from a different country. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, could you? <laughs> how did you get that idea? Uh, you started with a recipe, I think, a chicken and rice dish, I think, from Afghanistan. But mm-hmm. could you just t- talk about how you decided to do it and and how that first week went? Yeah. So I I think this this idea for cooking a meal from every country. I don't. It was a little bit of a crisis of motherhood, is what I talk about. I I had this new baby. She was six, seven months old, just starting to eat solid food. And I was feeling super restless. And I I wasn't sure what was wrong. And one night I went into the kitchen and I had these spice jars that my husband had purchased for me because he knew I loved to cook and he knew I wasn't cooking. And he didn't, you know, neither of us knew why. And he thought, well, here, this will help get you inspired. So I went into the kitchen one night in February. It was winter. And I was looking at these spice jars, and I was thinking about the past and all the challenges I had as a child and how my mom loved cooking. And I was thinking about all those flavors and kind of projecting them into these spice jars. And then then I thought about 
what else was out there in the world. And I was kind of in my mind seeing like, well, what if I could put all the flavors of the world into these spice jars? And so I just got excited and I thought this will be perfect. Not only is my daughter just starting out on solid foods, which science has told us that kids as little babies, even in the womb, will learn and adapt to taste preferences with what you feed them. But she may not remember if I take her to Italy and take a bunch of pictures. So this was a great thing, I thought, to help influence her palate for her life. And then my husband was very, very picky. And I was and I was in Oklahoma after having been overseas and, and just seeing a lot of different types of food. And so it just seemed like a great thing to try. Um, and I did. I started with Afghanistan. And I, I went alphabetical because I didn't want the work of playing favorites, right? And it, and it was this crash course in not just how to cook, but also how to eat in a different way. Um, so much of what I learned from Cooking the World was about community. And there's this great quote, uh, the first day we meet, the next day we are brothers. And this idea that that when we sit down to the food and we and we put away our silverware and we're digging in with our hands and we're having this communal meal, something changes. You said that you looked at the spice jars. This is before you came up with your idea. And uh, you, it was very emotional for you about all the flavors mm-hmm. of the world in the spice jars. Could you just explain what, what was that emotional moment for you looking at the spice jars? Yeah, looking at those spice jars, you know, it's hard to put in words. And even I don't know that I did it justice in the book, but I was trying to find... I think above all, a sense of connection or a sense of belonging. You know, I, I, I never knew my father. My mother passed me on to some um, guardians. And then that, the, the connection with my guardians didn't last. And so I, had, um, I never had a, um, an unconditional home, so to speak. And I think when I was part of what I was thinking about, and I didn't even know it then, was where do I belong? And, and there's a sense that I think... Anybody who's had um, challenging home life is looking to lean in to find something to hold them up. And I know, I don't, I don't know, but for me, I, I think I just looked out into the world. It came back to that idea of a global heritage and that I belong to the human family. Um, you almost poison yourself with one recipe. <laughs> I think with cassava. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to explain what happened? Yeah, so um, this cassava recipe, it's called baton de manioc, and uh, which is uh, just French word. It's an Angolan recipe, but um, they have French there. Um, the sticks of yuca, manioc, cassava, there are many names for it. And what the ladies in the village would do is they would take the... Uh, I'll, call, I'll call it cassava for this, <laughs> for this conversation. They take it down to the river, and they soak it for a long time to get rid of the cyanide in it. And then they would all pound and grate it together, and it gets wrapped in banana leaves and steamed for hours. And um, when you eat it, the combination of the cassava and the banana leaves, it's almost like an artichoke flavor, um, but it makes these dense little rods that you can eat um, great for dipping into a stew, especially a thick one where the sauce would coat the, the stick. And I spent 
gosh, it's felt like days grading this cassava by myself. I mean, here I am in Tulsa, Oklahoma, far from all my relatives, you know, just my husband, daughter, and I, and stepson. But there, there wasn't this sense of the village the way they had in Angola. So, I, so I, that's the first problem was I was doing all this work by myself without the fun conversation you have when you cook in community. And then I serve it, and my husband is just, you know, not interested in this. And so I, to prove a point, ate probably six, you know, of these things. And that night I fell over while holding my daughter, actually. I got very, very ill and blacked out. Um, so I looked it up, and it turns out that that in those woody fibers inside the cassava – are traces of cyanide. So if you if you were to grate those fibers into the packet the way I did, you would essentially be poisoning yourself. And so I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't cooking in community, so there were no elders, you know, wise elders to tell me, what are you doing? So um, I, I learned the hard way about that one. What was the country you thought would not give you something really wonderful and you got just this the most amazing recipe out of it? Oh my gosh, that is a tough question. And I, and it's funny, I do get it. And I feel like every time I struggle for an answer, because I, for me, it was so much about the smaller countries, any of them, really, like, uh, you know, Qatar, Oman, Oman is a great example. You know, in Oman, they have frankincense trees, and they make, they do all kinds of things with frankincense oil. And we can get it here in the States, but it's with the essential oils. And it's usually used for like, uh, massages, I guess. But there, it's it, it's used in food. So you can make ice cream with um, mm. frankincense oil. Yeah. And so you put a few drops into a vanilla ice cream base, and all of a sudden, you have what tastes like Christmas in July. Huh. Yeah, it's really incredible. It tastes like evergreen trees, oranges. It's, it's like very slight and haunting, um, really wonderful. And I think... So many of those smaller countries that we don't hear about have these little gems like that. So, Cambodian grilled eggs. Oh, man. This, this, I don't know if this would, um, this recipe was very, very challenging to make. <laughs> this is where you hollow out a raw egg, you blow out the egg, you whisk the egg together with whatever you want, really. Um, I did a very simple version in my book with fish sauce and brown sugar. You could use palm sugar. And then you, you funnel it back into your egg. So now you're dealing with, like, this thing that wants to leak and tip over. So it's a little bit of a juggling act. Um, and you put it in a steamer, and you steam it. And then the other tricky part about this recipe is that if your steam is too hot, it'll boil over, and you'll end up with, like, a half-filled, frothy cooked egg mixture inside the shell. But if you have it as gentle a heat as possible, you'll end up with this set flavorful egg mixture, almost not quite a custard. It is still, you know, a a whole egg that's been whisked. And then you take it and you put it on the grill. And this would be street food in Cambodia. So what did you take away from being with your mother, the years you were with her, that you then use raising your own daughter? I think um, the biggest lesson, some of the biggest lessons she gave me were to, to... Number one, let go a little bit and and, and just not be... I think something about me wants to control so much of my life and world and family. And she taught me that, you know, socks thrown into a hamper can be a game with a one-year-old. You don't have to make it 
so complicated in terms of just finding enjoyment in life. And then when it comes to food, she's the one that planted the seeds of that you know, curiosity, that hunger. She was constantly trying to recreate the Italian and Hungarian recipes of her childhood for us. Um, but she was also, you know, whenever she went to a folk dance, she would be asking, oh, what is this recipe? It's so good. And she would make Irish soda bread and she would make the German tree cake, which is 21 layers of broiled, super thin crepe-like layers. So she was just constantly curating from the world around her and getting the best it had to offer. I think that's something that, that I, I certainly am influenced by today. Yeah, I saw that recipe for Baumkuchen. I, I guess that would have to be a project. That's ex- it, yeah, and that's exactly what it was. It was to keep us kids busy on a rainy day. But I would say that that's just one of many recipes I discovered when I was cooking the world that involved this very time-consuming cooking process. So th- there is a reason why sometimes you want the cooking to take a long time. Because yeah, and I think we get away totally from that social. so much. You know, we get away from it so right. much in, uh, it, you know, our perfect kitchens with all the appliances we could ever need, and yet they're empty half the time, and, and, and we're afraid to have people over to cook with us because maybe we didn't fold that last load of laundry. Um, and it's such a shame. Out of all those recipes, are two or three of those recipes you've tested from around the world now part of your sort of everyday repertoire or every month repertoire? Yeah, probably one of my favorites is um, the Argentinian salad that I include in the book. It's um, super simple. It's based off of a Francis Malman recipe. There's this story I guess uh-huh. he shares yep. of the um, the guachos or the South American cowboys would take the whole pumpkin and roast it under the embers of a campfire. And and then they would add mm-hmm. salad to that and dressing, and you kind of mash it together, um, and you have this warm salad. And I thought, well, how fun. It seems a shame that I, that I can't make that for my family just because I'm not going to dig a fire pit in my backyard. And so I took um, smaller acorn squash. You can grill them in the summer. You can roast them in the, in, inside the house in the winter. And you get them as soft and, you know, lovely brown. And then you would add arugula for a nice peppery bite. You would add um, the aged goat cheese, or you could just use whatever um, soft cheese you have on hand. And then you make this mint oregano dressing. And I love it because it to me, it looks very fancy in the half of an acorn squash. I mean, it's almost like a ladies who lunch look. and But then you destroy it by mashing it all together. And that arugula wilts into the acorn squash. And so it's it's a really huh. fun recipe that's really wonderful. You ever thought you really like playing with your food? <laughs> I have this feeling. You know, <laughs> there, there is a bit of sport to all of this, which I which I really appreciate. Oh, that's so funny. You know, now that you say it, I, I am giving a lot of examples of the of the really fun ones. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That was Sasha Martin, author of the blog Global Table Adventure. You know, Sasha's phrase, poverty of resources as opposed to poverty of spirit, is really worth considering. Of course, one can be poor in material goods, yet rich in spirit. Or, put another way, it doesn't matter if dinner is cinnamon raisin pizza or perhaps the cooking of Auguste Escoffier. It's what's in your hearts that really matters. Food can be love or just fast food. You know, we always have a choice. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for our wine expert, Stephen Muse, who's going to solve the all-too-common holiday dilemma, how to choose the right wine to serve. 
Stephen, Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. How Holidays are, you? are creeping up rapidly. Yes, they are. And uh, it's time to get some uh, information about what to serve with a holiday dinner. Yes, right. You know, Chris, this is a subject that gives people a lot of anxiety, and I think, like, right now, we don't need any more anxiety uh, about anything. We want to slide into these holidays and, you know, just enjoy them. So I say time for a new idea, a new way to think I like about that. the holiday I like meal, that. okay? I'm going to offer a completely new way to think about the holiday meal here. New take, way. Take out. <laughs> <laughs> We're not cooking this year. Well, maybe Steven. not that... <laughs> Maybe not quite that radical, <laughs> okay. but I think it's a new way to think about it. And, you know, you're, you're asked, if you're a wine writer, how to solve this holiday problem. So this is the way that I've decided to solve it. Sort of forget about the meal part what? of this. All right. I know it sounds crazy, but look, the holiday meal is really the easiest part of the thing. If we're talking about family meals now... Not the one where you invite your wine geek friends over your gourmet club, but there's a family meal. You really do have to kind of relax here a little bit. And um, my idea for the meal is simply this. You know, put a few different wines on the table. Give people a choice. There are some people who, no matter how carefully you've tried to plan it, they're not going to drink your, your beautiful little Pouille Fouise because they only drink Cabernet. So, like, give up on that. Put a few different modestly priced, tasty wines on the table, and let people do what they want. Stephen, it sounds like you're fed up with 2016. You you, you just want to get to 2017 as quickly and as easily as possible. No, not really quite that. What I want to say is it's a holiday meal, and there's got to be bling. There's got to be fun. There's got to be festivity. So the idea, Chris, is to introduce this idea that I call topping and tailing the meal, right? Which means... Well, it sort of means pay attention to the beginning and to the end, and the middle will kind of take yeah, care yeah, of itself. It's funny you say that. For like 25 years, I've had the same thing. It's the app and the dessert. Yeah. And everything in between, people forget. It's a blur, right? It's a blur. Okay. So, but it is the holiday. So we want some bling. We want some festivity. So my idea is, think about it this way. A warm hello, a cheery goodbye. Okay. So what that means for me is, when your guests come in, the first drink of the day ought to be something bubbly, something really cheerful and bubbly. So it could be, and I have some wines lined up here to illustrate, right? I've got a beautiful bottle of Pierre Payard uh, Boud Champagne. It's an estate bottle champagne. Great way to start a dinner. It's 50 bucks. If you don't want to spend that much, I've got a sparkling Vouvray here for about 35 Delicious. A $15 cava. I'm telling you, they'll be thrilled with it. It gets things off to a flying start. If I served you a $15 cava at a holiday <laughs> meal, you would, you would turn around and walk out of the house probably. No, but but no, you're no. not typical. No, no, I wouldn't okay. do that. Okay, so bubbles at the beginning. And then your meal, where everybody gets to taste a little so bit. So you say of put a bunch of different bottles, open them on the table, they get the shoes. Put them okay. on the table, let people pour what they want. They'll be happy as clams. You're having a turkey dinner, something like that. It's not a big issue to try to you know, mix them. Something on that table is going to make every guest happy. Okay. All right. So that's the warm hello. Cheery goodbye. At the end of the meal, give them something sweet. I've got here a little Moscato Dusty. This is a $20 wine. You serve it with a piece of pound cake or maybe uh, a holiday pie. It's a little bubbly. It's a little sweet. Very, very nice stuff. Always inexpensive. A Vincento, which is a classic accompaniment to panettone mm-hmm. or maybe biscotti, something like that. And uh, Tawny Port, 
you know, great with a piece of blue cheese, maybe a handful of walnuts. Look at this. Oof. Hey, let's open that one. <laughs> that says 1970 on it. 1970 Dow's. That's going to be a lot of fun. But the one that I poured for you to try this afternoon is the Chateau Le Peral Sauzignac. What does that mean? Sauzignac is an appellation in the French Southwest. They make a Sauterne-like wine, typically for mm. less money. How's that? Well, lovely. Yeah, luscious, isn't it? I'll take that bottle home. Yeah. Okay. This is mm. a, yeah, this is a 2000. Apricotty and yeah, rich. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, it's a $45 half bottle of wine, but you only need a few sips, and, you know, you're, you're totally good. So... That's it. Ease up on the anxiety for the meal. Get a bunch of bottles out there. Let people pour their own, some red, some white. Concentrate on the warm hello, a bottle of bubbly, the cheery goodbye, something sweet. You're done. Just like the Beatles. Hello, hello, goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, our favorite food books of 2016 and more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Monica Holmes. Hi, Monica Holmes. Hey, Monica. How can we help Hi. you? Hi. Well, I love the magazine, and I wanted to know if I use a cake recipe, like I make a cake from scratch, and normally you just put it in your cake pans. Can I use that same kind of recipe to make cupcakes, or would I have to change something? I know the timing would be a little different, but would I have to change anything with the ingredients? I mean, if it was an American layer cake. Yeah, you know, your typical I, yeah. butter, eggs, sugar. No, then there's no problem. The question would be if you get into a foamier, more delicate cake. Like I wouldn't do it with an angel food cake, for example, because you need the straight sides of the angel food cake pan. But I think an American layer cake, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in muffin tin would work fine or cupcake tin. Yeah, you get about 24 to 36 from your usual cake recipe. I think that would work well. Did you have a particular cake in mind you wanted to turn into cupcakes? I actually, no, I did try one because my son got married in September and I had to make cupcakes for him. And I kind of needed to know then. But I did try a chocolate cake I had and it worked out fine for that one. But a long time ago, it's been quite a while, I had tried a cake, and I don't even remember what kind it was, but I had done a, like a white cake, and for some reason, when I made it into cupcakes, it just didn't seem quite right. It kind of like sunk in the middle, so I don't know exactly what I had done wrong. You know, if, if it sinks in the middle, sometimes the oven's so hot that the sides are heated up more than the middle, mm-hmm. and then the center drops, so... One thing you might try is 25 degrees lower in the oven, and that tends to solve the problem of a sinking middle, at least in any cake. Okay. But, but I, I don't think you'd have a problem. Any kind of basic layer cake that's very sturdy should not have a problem. I would try a slightly oh. lower oven temperature if that's a problem you're having. Okay. Well, that sounds good. That so, was so, uh, my question. So did you serve cupcakes at the wedding? I did. We had uh, three different kinds. I did a yellow cupcakes, the chocolate, and then the white, and then I had to cut out fondant daisies for the top because that was what the bride wanted. Mm. Boy, you're serious. I made about 150 cupcakes. Whoa. Wow. That's labor of love. Yep. That was, that took quite a while. I've never done, I mean, have you ever done uh, Sarah, a fondant daisy? No, I have not. That's have you ever done fondant? In cooking school yeah. a zillion years ago, so I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. Very impressed. But you're okay. a pro. Yeah, you are. Man, thanks, Monica. Well, thank you yeah, so much. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pat from Stoughton, Massachusetts. How can we help you? Well, my question has been for a long time, how do I accurately measure 
basic ingredients like peanut butter and sour cream. The adjust the cup, the plunger style works fine. Mm -hmm. And Sarah and I are about to get into a huge fight. But if it says half a cup of sour cream, it's half a cup. I mean, it's a dry measure. You almost never Mm -hmm. see five ounces sour cream or peanut butter or honey. So if it says quarter cup, half a cup, measure it by dry weight. And use the adjust the cup, which has a plunger, as you know, and makes it easier to get it out of the cup. I guess with honey and, I mean, but the honey, the adjust a cup thing, I really haven't played with that all that much. Oh, I I love it. I was just doing a cooking class, and we measured two cups of farro, and then you just sort of, you know, press it into the... Um, mm-hmm. It's so yep. cool. But if you're not using one of those and you're just using a regular dry measuring cup, no, actually, Chris, I do agree. You need to spray it or oil it so that you get all the honey out or all right. the peanut butter out or whatever. The thing about liquid yeah. measuring cups is then you don't have it level and you need to no. have it level. So, no, I actually right. agree. No, we're not going to fight. What? Are you disappointed? Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm ready for <laughs> I'm fight. disappointed now. <laughs> Well, well, weights are the best way. Yeah. So if a recipe gives you a weight, then yeah. I would measure it by weight. But if it says a half a cup, then it use says, a dry. It yeah. Says half a cup. I agree. Okay, there we go. That was it? Yeah. That was too easy, wasn't oh, it? Oh, man. Jeez, sorry. All right. Well, Pat, thank you so much. Best wishes on Milk Street. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring 1 855 4 Bowtie or 855 426 9843. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. You can also find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and our own website, of course, milkstreetradio.com. Hi, who do we have on the line? Welcome to Milk Street. Oh, thank you. This is Diane. What is your thorny issue today? Well, I try to make, well, I say galamad, but I know the correct way is calamari. You must be Italian. Several times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and it comes out rubbery. And I tried a few things, but it still is rubbery. So I've tried to make it in the red sauce, and I've also grilled it, which that wasn't too bad. So you have tips for me? Yes. The general rule about calamari is uh, very quickly or for quite a while. So That's just like life. It's <laughs> Hot and fast or slow and low. Yeah. No, no, but that's really true. So say you're going to do it on a grill, make sure the grill's really, really hot. And the larger the calamari, the better, I think, you know, because they won't fall through the slats and they won't overcook. And just get it sort of, you know, season it, oil, salt, and pepper, get it on and off pretty quickly, like within minutes. And it should be fine. But then, Chris, do you want to take us to the red sauce scenario, which is the opposite end of the spectrum? Yeah, I braise, which means in a liquid, but very low and slow. Mm -hmm. And that way the proteins aren't going to seize up and get tough. So. You do it very low heat for a long period of time. At least 30 minutes yeah. and probably two, longer. Two, oh, oh, 30 minutes? I was going to say two hours. Well, no, minutes? and a no. lot longer, a lot longer. Uh, no. Oh, okay. And then until you can cut it easily. So never make it boil, though, just a little <gasps> simmer? No. You know, it's funny because people boil shrimp. I basically am anti-boiling any kind of protein. I think it just turns out like rubber bands. You know, it's chewy. Well, you can poach your chicken. But that's, that's not, not boiling. boiling. No, that's not boiling. That, no, that's right. uh, that kind of intense heat is terrible for any kind of protein. Well, you know, we just tested this. We tested a recipe, I think, with Diane Kennedy in Mexico, mm-hmm. where she was doing a chipotle shrimp dish. Mm-hmm. And she cooks the shrimp in the residual heat of the sauce. Always great. It's off heat. And mm-hmm. it's just the hot sauce. The heat of the sauce. I, I've done that with it. shrimp myself, yeah. but and you know what? Calamari, I don't. You could actually do that. That would be back to the under two minute rule or under one minute rule, but it wouldn't marry with the sauce the way the braising for a right. couple of hours right. would. 
So where did you have the biggest problem, with the grilling or with uh, the braising? With the red sauce. The grilling was pretty good. It wasn't as good as I've had it out, but that was very good. But no, the red sauce was terrible, and I did make it cook for an awful long time. Do you think maybe it did boil? I thought I was simmering it, but it could have probably started at a boil, and then I lowered it. That so, was probably the so problem. So I, I won't let it ever boil. Just little simmers, little bu- little bubbles, right? Yes. Okay, thank you very Take much. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time to review our favorite food books of 2016. Joining me is our editorial director, Jason Hirsch. J.M. Hirsch, how are you? All right, how are you? It's time for our top 10 cookbooks of 2016. We'll alternate. I'll start. A Taste of Persia. It's by Naomi Duguid. She did Sweet, Sour, Salty, Bitter with her then-husband many years ago. This is Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Iran, and Kurdistan. Lots of vegetables, a lot of broth, lots of bean dishes, lots of eggplant. It's my kind of cooking. It's clean. It's simple. It's basic. It's not hard. Uh, Lovely book. Well, my type of cooking generally starts with a cocktail, which is why I like Sasha Petrosky's Regarding Cocktails. He is the recently deceased man behind the New York City speakeasy Milk and Honey. Now, I could go into the 85 cocktail recipes that he includes, but I prefer a (laughs) quote. If you're serious about making cocktails at home, the first thing you have to do is take all the food out of your freezer and throw it away. It'll add unwanted flavor to the ice, and you're going to eat it anyway. My kind of man. So my next book, this is number three, is Sofra Mies. This is from Sofra, which is a cafe in Cambridge. Anna Sorton is the chef, and it's also written with Maura Kilpatrick. This is uh, fabulous food, Moroccan food, a lot of za'atar. Tomato brown butter is one of the things I love. Carrots and black-eyed peas. This is just wonderful food. Uh, A lot of mies. It's just great. All right. Coming in at number four, Julia Tertian's Small Victories. She's a co-author of many cookbooks with plenty of other famous people. This time she's on her own. And what I love about this book is it gives us lots of great, basic, clean recipes for wonderful food. But each recipe also gives you a lesson, things that are going to make your cooking better, easier, more flavorful, kind of the whole Milk Street mission. And it's one of the things that drew me to it. You know, things like massage your greens to tenderize them, you know, and roasting veggies that aren't typically roasted, things that you usually serve raw. She does this with radishes to really great effect. Another book I really like is Fuchsia Dunlop. Uh, She did Every Grain of Rice uh, not too long ago. Her new book is Land of Fish and Rice. It's about the lower Yangtze River. It's a little more challenging than Every Grain of Rice, but it's really interesting combinations, uh, things you've never seen before and you can actually do at home. Uh, Dory Greenspan's Dory's Cookies. It's time for the holidays. Pick up some cookies. But I like about her is that she's not afraid to kind of throw out the rules and take fresh approaches with cookies. She has a double buckwheat, double chocolate chip cookie that has buckwheat flour and kasha in it. Phenomenal. Another book I really like is The Saffron Tales. This is by Yasmin Khan. I interviewed her recently on Milk Street. Uh, it's the Persian kitchen. Uh, lots of breakfast, which I love. Side dishes, meze, salads, soups. Interesting food, approachable, and just hits the spot, especially if you're a big fan of Odalengi. Well, speaking of London, actually, uh, Diana Henry, you know, she's a great food writer from, from the UK. She, she just embodies simplicity, and sure enough, that's the name of her latest book, Simple. Effortless food, big flavors. You know, she braises leeks and peas in olive oil. She serves it with feta and dill. It's clean, simple flavors, but 
big flavors. I really like her approach. And then if we head south down to the Middle East, we have Michael Solmanov's Zahav, a world of Israeli cooking, although he's in Philly. And, and again, he's just taking big, bold flavors, simple ingredients, and giving us fried cauliflower with herbed labneh or roasted zucchini with anchovies, feta, and hazelnuts. It's just such a simplicity of approach to cooking, and, and it's so easy to get big, bold flavors on the table. My last book is my favorite book of the year. It's The Food and Wines of France. It's by Ed Baer. He publishes The Art of Eating. He spent 30 years traveling around France and other places. This is about people who make things from scratch in the old-fashioned way. They don't like progress, <laughs> Just why I like it. Uh, and it really has a soul. This is a great quote. This is a guy who makes Kugelhoff, and he was talking to his daughter, Christina, who took over the business. Quote, Feel it first in your heart, he said. You will feel the knowledge flow from your heart to your arm to your hand. The day when you know that, you'll know how to make Kugelhoff. (laughs) You like that? I like that. (laughs) Cocktails and Kugelhoff. That's our top 10 list for 2016. Thank you, Jam. Thank you so much. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about an herbal paste. You know, most of us think about pesto, the uh, paste from Liguria, basil, pine nuts, parmesan oil, and garlic. Of course, Italy has dozens of different varieties of paste or pestos, and other cultures have them too. The Mexicans make an adobo sauce that has hot chilies in it, or in the Middle East, there are lots of pastes that combine spices and herbs. But here's the secret. Here's the Milk Street Basic. You don't need a recipe. Simply process a few handful of fresh herbs in a food processor, Drizzle in oil until you have a nice smooth paste. We, of course, add some salt to that. And if you like, also some nuts or some hard-aged cheese. Here are combinations we like. Cilantro and dill are nice. Parsley with just a little bit of thyme is also good. And we love dill and mint. You can also use a peppery arugula as a base. Now, if you want to keep these in the fridge for a week or two, just add more oil during processing. That will help preserve the color and flavor. Then the question is how to use these pestos or paste. Well, of course, in Italy, they're often used on pasta, but lots of other cultures will put them into a grain salad, for example, or on couscous, or even with grilled meats or vegetables. That's this week's Milk Street Basic. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's where you can also download each week's recipe. See you next week on Milk Street Radio. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Production assistant, Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.